If you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 10. I just wanted to tell you this so you guys know that on February 13th, the day before um, Valentine's Day, we'll be talking about sex and singleness here. So what we're going to be doing uh, today is talking about marriage and divorce. Next week is undecided, either part two of this or moving on, but then like we talked about, we will be talking about singleness, which comes up a lot, and then sex, which also comes up a lot as well. So, Mark chapter 10. Last week, I shared a little disclaimer before we started on hell, and I said that, that the disclaimer was that what Jesus was about to teach in Mark chapter 9, it, was, it stung a bit. I said, what we're about to read is going to sting, <clears throat> and it was about hell and temptation, and I said the words were meant to sting, but to hear Jesus out. I said, please don't leave. <clears throat> when I read this passage about hell and temptation, don't go, okay, I'm out of here. This is a very strange church. I'm out, but to hear Jesus out. Now, what Jesus says next and what we'll look at today will surely offend our modern sensibilities about marriage and divorce. But again, I say, please, please hear him out. And I want to say two things before we start. Number one, this is not exhaustive at all. I would have to do 15 weeks on marriage and then another 10 weeks on divorce to make it exhaustive. I can't do that. And so I will try today to go through the text and to pull out what, what I believe is the essence of what Jesus is teaching here. It's not exhaustive, but again, like we did last week, I will try to blog on a couple further resources that you guys can read and, and uh, places you guys can read. The second thing I will say is that I will confess to you that what Jesus teaches and what we'll talk about today is widely debated and very controversial, especially in a city like San Francisco. But we endeavor to be a community that follows Jesus. That's what we endeavor to be as a church, a community that follows Jesus. That means listening to and coming under the authority of his teachings. So allow me to, to read Mark chapter 10. I'll read through verse 16, and we'll beg God for help. So let me read. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, the disciples asked him again about this matter of divorce, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. 
But, what, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. That is our text this morning. Leave it to Jesus to talk about marriage, divorce, gender, adultery, and kids all in one breath. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that, Jesus, you are full of grace and truth. You're full of both of them. You're full of grace and you're full of truth. And in teachings like this, Lord, I find it hard to reconcile both of those. I, so much of me just wants to go all grace, but I can't depart from your truth. And then there's part of me that wants to go all truth, but we cannot depart from your grace. And so, Lord, I pray by the presence, by your presence here among us this morning, that this church would be filled with both grace and truth, God. That we would learn the truth of marriage and the truth of divorce and the grace and the love and the compassion and the reconciliation of Jesus. And I pray that there's something that resonates, whether we agree with it or not, something that resonates so deep inside of us about the way that you created things to be. And so, Lord, we, I submit uh, my mouth and my mind to you as that you would use me this morning. And those of us that can say this, we submit our minds to you and say, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the book of Mark uh, for a while now, listening and learning from the story of Jesus. And what we've been saying almost every single week since we started the book of Mark is that Jesus brings in the kingdom of God. Jesus brings in the kingdom of God. Jesus, we've been saying, comes with a story of a greater power than the power of sin, death, and decay. He has a better story than the, than the story and a greater power than the power of sin, death, and decay. And the way that this has been illustrated in the book of Mark for us is the world that Jesus has entered into. So Jesus has broken into time and space, has entered into our world, and our world, the narrative that Jesus, Jesus enters into in the book of Mark, was a world where, there, where demons dominate people. This is where Jesus came into. Demons were dominating people. Illnesses were making people less than whole. Nature threatened to destroy us, and humans oppressed other humans. That's the context in which Jesus entered. And what Jesus does is he literally breaks in. Now remember that phrase, breaks in. It's going to be very important. What Jesus does is he breaks in and he challenges every other claim to power in the book of Mark. That's what the book of Mark is. That's why it's so fast-paced. That's why the book of Mark is like an action movie. Jesus breaks in immediately and he starts to challenge everything that comes against the loving rule of God. Everything that comes against that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from created order, Jesus breaks in and he brings freedom. It's like he takes personal offense to the things that make us profoundly flawed and he goes after them to set them right. The book of Mark is about Jesus restoring us and restoring this world back to the way things were meant to be. Not only did Jesus do this physically by healing the blind 
and he cured people from demonic oppression, and he restored a leper, and he calmed the sea. Like, not only did he do it physically, but here we see today he did this instructionally, meaning Jesus teaches a better way. Not only does he embody a better way, he teaches us how to live in a better way, in a better narrative. And what I mean by better is not superior, but I, weigh, but I mean Jesus brings things back to the way they were created, that they were meant to be. Now, if you noticed in our text, if you observed our text when I was reading it, you probably noticed that Jesus altogether dodges the question about divorce. It's like, what do you think about divorce? Jesus goes, what did Moses say? Like, he never answered the question. He dodges it. He never answers it directly. And you and I, you and I in this room might have all these what-if questions about marriage and about divorce. Can I get a divorce? When is divorce okay? Is someone allowed to marry after they get a divorce? Can I marry someone who's been divorced? Who can and can't I marry? Who's even allowed to be married? Jesus doesn't enter into any of these conversations. Why not? All of these questions find their resolution. All of these questions move toward a resolution only when we see the way it was all meant to be. There's no way to even start to un unpack these questions until you all and everyone comes to an agreement of the way that things were meant to be. And this is why Jesus says, this is how he answers the question, in the beginning. That's how he answers the question. Like, okay, what, what do you think about divorce? What do you think about marriage? What? He just goes, listen, I'm not going to enter into all of those arguments. Here it is, in the beginning. And what we'll see when Jesus tells the once upon a time story of the beginning is the place and the permanence of marriage. We'll see the place of marriage in the story of God and the permanence of marriage in its creation, in its inception. So first, the place of marriage. So in our text, the Pharisees, who were the Hebraic religious leaders of the day, they were also very powerful politically, came to Jesus to ask him a question about divorce. Now, they, they, this question is both a religious question, because it has to do with Old Testament law. That's why Jesus pushes it back to, what is Moses command you, who wrote the Old Testament law? But it's also political, because John the Baptist, if you've been here for a while, John the Baptist was beheaded. And the reason why John the Baptist was beheaded was because he spoke out publicly disapproving Herod's divorce and remarriage to his own brother's wife. And he publicly denounced him, he said it was wrong to do that, and then he was beheaded. So this was a hot-button issue both religiously and politically at this time. And this question was also a trap. If you notice, they said they went up to Jesus, asked him this question in order to test him or in order to trap him. And it went something like this. This is the, how the conversation went. The Pharisees walk up to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answers with a question. He doesn't answer with an answer. He answers with a question. What did Moses command you? And their response, well, Moses allowed a man, now look at the way this is framed. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And part of you inside just wants to punch someone right now, right? <laughs> to send her, write her off, just like cut her off. There, there was two main schools of thought surrounding when someone could file for divorce or write this, quote, certificate of divorce. And it was centered around what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. Now, the irony here is this. Moses 
both recorded and scribed Genesis and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus said, what did Moses command you? They immediately went to Deuteronomy. It's like, well, Moses said, Psh, it's all good. Like, we just write her off. They didn't go, well, Moses said, in the beginning. So Jesus goes, actually, in the beginning. And it centered on what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. This is where the Pharisees went. What if a man, and this is what Deuteronomy chapter 24 says, that if a man finds some indecency in his wife, he could write a certificate of divorce and put her away, literally cut her off. And there was two schools of rabbinic thought. One of them was a liberal thought, and one of them was conservative, like it always is. The conservative interpretation went something like this, and it centered around the word indecency. And the conservative idea was this, if a woman, if a wife acted sexually indecent, if she was sexually immoral, he can cut her off. The liberal school of thought, the liberal interpretation was if she spoiled the food she was cooking. That's not a joke. That was literally in their law. Or she was quarrelsome. Or if a man came across a woman more beautiful than she and he lost interest in his wife, indecent, I could put you away. Or if they grew apart. Or if things changed. Or if they just weren't feeling it anymore. Now take away the male dominance now that I know every single person is picking up on in here. And we'll do that in a second. Okay? But if you take away the male dominance in there, you don't have that much of a difference between that interpretation of divorce and a modern interpretation of divorce. John Adam and Nancy Williamson wrote a book called Divorce, How and When to Let Go, and there's this quote inside of this book. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits that you are to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step It can be a personal triumph, end quote. Economist Betsy Stevenson, who wrote in the New York Times about our current divorce rate being the highest divorce rate in history, currently over 50% in the church and outside of the church, she was being interviewed by NPR, and she said that she thinks, quote, we need to reassess what success means about marriage. And look at the divorce rate, not as a failure of marriage, but as a celebration of life. The place that the Pharisees and most rabbinic tradition gave to marriage was the same place that moderns give to marriage. Marriage is good as long as it fulfills us. Rachel Combe wrote in Elle magazine, not that I read Elle magazine, Someone sent this to me. An article entitled, Till Whatever Do Us Part. Clever title. In the article, it says that most marriages these days are consumer marriages. As long as my spouse is meeting my needs, then I stay. But if the costs go up and the rewards go down, I bolt. And if a better alternative comes along, I'm gone. So there's always a threat to the marriage. And couples are always asking themselves, How happy is this marriage making me? 
I will confess as a fallen sinner that has been redeemed by Jesus in my marriage, I ask myself that question sometimes as well, and it's sin. This was their ideology as well. You're like, well, this, that's a modern thing. Actually, no, it's actually a very ancient thing. This was their idea as well, that if marriage becomes all about us, and when marriage becomes all about us, then we look for a way out when we begin to suffer either by eating bad food that they cook, or like they are not as attractive as they once were, or when our needs are not being met, or when our expectations are not fulfilled, or when we're hurt, or when things get difficult, we leave. This is not the place that Jesus gives to marriage. Jesus answers this question about marriage and divorce by saying, in the beginning, actually I want to quote what he says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, notice where Jesus takes this conversation. He places the story of marriage into the original, bigger, greater story of God. Jesus says, here's the way that marriage was meant to be. Here's the way it was supposed to be. Now, why does he do this? Why does he seemingly dodge the question about divorce and talk about the first marriage? What the religious leaders really wanted when they were asking Jesus this question, what you and I really want when we ask questions like this is we just want Jesus to affirm something we did or we are about to do. We want the church to affirm in society to justify our actions. But this was not Jesus' primary interest here. Jesus' primary interest is restoring us to the the way for which we were created to live. That's what Jesus' interest was. He wasn't going, okay, I'm not going to talk about something to to justify what you're doing or to affirm. What I want to do is I want to take everyone's mind in everyone's heart and bring it back to the way that I originally created it. He wants to restore the image of God in us. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage. And that's what Jesus does. Listen, and I'm gonna, I wanna add these things as we go along because these things were not meant to just annihilate you with guilt and destruction. We everyone in here, we're all profoundly flawed people. Whether we come from broken homes or homes that are perfect. We can barely treat a pet with respect and love, let alone another human with mutual love and respect for the rest of our lives. And this is why Jesus must restore our souls and reorient our lives around God's true intentions for life and marriage. And God's true intentions for marriage are not found in Deuteronomy 24 with how to get divorced, but in the opening chapters of Genesis with how God makes two become one. That's where we get marriage. That's the place that Jesus gives to marriage. It originates in the heart and the mind of God. So what we also see is the permanence that Jesus gives marriage. Now this is, this is a tough pill to swallow. Point two, the permanence of marriage. Now I'm going to take a drink of water. I'm going to come right out and say something 
because Jesus says this, but I'm going to add one caveat. Remember the context. Jesus is answering self-righteous Pharisees who are trying to trap him in a question. That's the context. He's not speaking to here face-to-face with someone who's had experienced the brokenness of marriage and divorce. He's not speaking to the woman at the well or the woman caught in the act of adultery or a man who is blind and begging to be healed by Jesus and Jesus moves with compassion and heals him. He's not standing right in front of someone who's absolutely broken. He's standing in front and he's speaking to a bunch of cold-hearted, hard-hearted Pharisees. So what Jesus says might sound harsh, but it doesn't make it not true. So that's the caveat. This is what Jesus says. Marriage is a permanent relationship between one man and one woman. That's what Jesus says here. Marriage is a permanent relationship. Permanent. Your mind might be racing right now to what ifs and what abouts. You're like, okay, what about the Old Testament? There was polygamy. There was certificates of divorce. What if they cheat? What if they neglect? What if and what about? And you can, your mind is filled with all of these questions. And this is why Jesus takes us back to the beginning. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. <clears throat> what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. <clears throat> Jesus bracketed Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 here. If you've ever read Genesis 1 and 2, he, he took from both accounts. He bracketed. He, first he said, he took Genesis 1. He said, God created them male and female. Now this is fascinating. If you've ever read, maybe it's, you know, it's January, maybe you started reading the book of Genesis this month, right? It's new, new year. Start, I'm going to read the book, Bible cover to cover. Genesis 3 is probably as far as you get. <laughs> but endure. You can do it. I believe in you. Genesis 1. If you've ever read that account carefully, it's very, very interesting. It says that God created them male and female. And the reason why it's fascinating, uh, when God creates male and female humanity, the language of the creation narrative sounded a bit like this from the opening, from the opening words. God said it. God said, let there be, and it was. So God said, let there be light, and it was, and sky, and it was, and let there be vegetation that comes from the ground, and there was, and let there be living creatures that teem in the ocean, and there was, let there be living creatures that are in the sky, and there was, and let there be, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and there was. God spoke and caused all of these things to happen, but when God created man and woman, the, the approach changed, the narrative changed a bit. It says, God himself acted personally and directly. He said, let us make man in our image. It changes completely. He has a conversation with himself as the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. The first readers might probably were blown away at this. Like, wait, look at, look at how it changes here. Look at how God says this and it was and this and it was. But then he's like, hey, let us make man in our image. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Each of these lines 
point out how the original story was written. It says, God created man in his own image. We came from God. In the image of God, he created him. We bear resemblance to God. And then listen, lastly, male and female who created them. Man and woman together bear the image of God. It's like God's image cannot be born simply by an individual, but by man and woman together in marriage. When God said, let us make man in our image, he didn't just make one, he made both. It's important to note this. And it's also important to note that it's never, this, the gender of any other created being is not mentioned in the creation account. Man and woman reflect the image of God. So it's this diversity in men and women and the covenantal community of marriage that mirrors the image of God. This means that even our sexual and social diversity reflects the image of God. Now, obviously, Genesis 3 enters in and messes everything up. But the image of God is not lost. It's just distorted, and it's flawed by sin. But Genesis 2, Jesus brackets the end by Genesis 2. He says, the two now become one. Now, Genesis 2 kind of zeroes in on the marriage account, the first marriage account. And I love going through Genesis 2 in premarital counseling. In the midst of this stunning perfection, Genesis 2 says that something is really wrong. There's one deficiency. Man is alone. And most men in here that are alone are like, yes, tell me about it. <laughs> it's not good that man's alone. And most guys are like, uh-huh, true. <laughs> Something's wrong, man's alone. But surprisingly, what's funny, again, if you read, read the Bible slowly, it's really, really interesting. God doesn't go, boom, I'm going to create someone else. He marches all the animals in front of Adam. Why does God do that? Why does God go, you're alone. I'm going to march all these animals in front of you. The reason why God did that was because man did not see the problem of his aloneness yet. God's like, man, you're alone. At that time, he's like, I'm fine. I'm perfect. I'm like, I'm good. No, he's like, no, you're alone. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I feel great. You're my friend. You're God. I mean, we have a thing. It's awesome. He's like, and then so he marches all the animals in front of him. And Adam probably, probably, when he was doing when he encountered serving God and doing God's work, understood his own need. When he was serving, like, I can't do this alone. I can't do this. He probably ran out of names. Like, I can't, I, I'm not creative. I'm like, grasshopper. He started naming them by what they did. <laughs> Fly. I give up. I can't do this anymore. This is way too hard. I'm out of things to call them. And in serving God, he understood his need. And not only that, as he examined each animal, he was to examine the animal and name it according to its nature. He began to see that there was no one in the garden that shared his nature. No one was like him. Everyone was different. So God put man asleep and then took from his side a rib and made Eve. And Adam awoke and it was poetry, literally. He said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. You're like, wait, that's not very poetic. It actually is. He's saying, this one alone is my equal. She is my flesh. I identify with her. I love her. And she's hot. Rings, please. <laughs> he identified with her. This, this is who God created me and created for me. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother. This is very important. Man shall leave his father and mother 
what, what God's saying here is there is a new social and family order. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, a new creation. God continues to create and making something new, two people becoming one. That's a miracle. So God keeps on creating. Now, why is divorce so devastating? Why does God say in Malachi chapter 2, I hate divorce, says the Lord? Because God makes two people one flesh. And why is adultery in marriage, and as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, sex outside of marriage, that's a violation of not only the marriage covenant, but also how God made things in the beginning. It's ripping apart what God has created. John Stott, I've actually shared this quote before, but I think it's very important to share again. Sex and marriage is more than a union, it's a reunion. It's not just a, a union of, of two alien persons who do not belong to one another and cannot appropriately become one flesh. On the contrary, it's a union between two persons who were originally, became, who were originally one, then were separated from each other, and now in the sexual encounter of marriage, come together again. Marriage is the pre-fall creation of God. It's not a human custom, though there are many human customs that surround it. It's not variable according to where you live. It's divinely created by God. It was his idea. It was meant and created to best reflect his image, his nature, and his character. Now, I promised I would get back to this male dominance issue that seems to run through the Pharisees' answer to Jesus when they said, Moses said that a man can write a certificate of divorce and send her away. What Jesus says here is actually revolutionary. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, he's committing adultery against her. This was unheard of at the time. This was never the case. When a man left his wife and slept with someone else, he was not committing adultery against her, he was committing adultery against her family, her dad, or against the husband of who he slept with. It was never against her, but Jesus here says, no, it's against her. Jesus says, once you, com you commit adultery, you commit it against her. She has as much worth and as much dignity and as much respect and love than anyone else in the marriage. You commit adultery against her. This was revolutionary. Not only that, but Jesus assumes that the wife can divorce her husband. That was never the case. But Jesus says, and if she leaves her husband, and they're like, wait, wives can't do that. Jesus says, Yes, they can. Jesus is saying that men and women are both capable of the same amount of damage. Both capable of the same amount of bringing pain to marriage because you are one flesh. You're both in this together. John Edwards probably said it best. The greatest difference between Jesus and the rabbis is this. By giving the husband principal control over his wife, the Jewish divorce policy made the man the lord of the marital relationship. According to Jesus, however, it is neither the man or woman who controls the marriage, but God, who is the Lord of marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God 
fuses two lives into one. God is in control of the marriage. That's why it's all centered around God. God, and again, the word man, we talked about this before when we talked about sin, is the word anthropos. You had to have a God-centered marriage. God is in control of the marriage, not man, not woman. God is at the center of the marriage. Now, divorce as an option might seem to limit the damage people do to each other. Okay, let's get divorced because we're, we're ruining each other's lives here. We need to live life. We need to get divorced and, and, and see other people and do other things. But Jesus did not regard divorce as the end of the requirement of, the, of faithfulness imposed by marriage. This is huge. This is hard to say. I'll just tell you that right now. A lot of us go, well, you know what? And a lot of, our, a lot of people go, marriage is hard. We, we just can't make it work. Here's divorce papers. We're free from one another. But Jesus is like, no, you're not. If you get divorced and marry another, you're committing adultery. And you're like, wait, what are you saying? Adultery if I get divorced and get married? What are you saying? Jesus is saying that when God creates something, Two becoming one flesh, he can't uncreate it. When you're married and you've made your vows and you've had sex, you are one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Actually, it's a command, that's the indicative mood in, in the Greek. What God has joined together, you can't separate. God has made them one flesh. You cannot uncreate that. It's like it has a life of its own, even after the certificate of divorce. We can terminate, it. We can terminate an unwanted marriage just like we can terminate an unwanted pregnancy, but it doesn't mean it didn't have a life of its own by God's design. And it doesn't mean that the blood of that death is not on our hands. But allow me to end pastorally, like, listen. Because this, again, is such a very, very difficult thing to stand up here and teach. This is a very, very difficult thing to, as people who read the Bible and live out our lives in this area, to live out. This is so hard. Let me get very, very, very pastoral for a second. The same God who said through Malachi, I hate divorce, also said through Hosea, whose wife cheated on him with other men, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. For us to truly understand how devastating divorce is, we have to understand the way that God intended marriage. However, you and I are all sexually broken people. Everyone in here, to a certain degree, is relationally broken. Genesis 1 and 2, as we read, tell us that that's not the way things were meant to be. That there is the way that, that God created everything where you can actually be. I was reading uh, 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 an article in, in the Washington Post to, uh, this week, and the, the, the guy was talking about marriage, and he said, that's why all fictional authors kill, kill off the, the, marry, or the, the romantic couple at age 14, because they don't know what to do with them after that. 
Like, they fall in love. Like, what do we do? Like, how long is this book going to go on? Are they going to love each other for the rest of their lives? That gets boring. We kind of live in this place, this culture where we know we want to love someone, to be naked and unashamed and in love and committed for the rest of our lives. We've seen those movies where people, they die on their deathbeds like next door to each other and they're super old and they've lived this whole life together and we cry and like, that's the way it was meant to be. And there's something that resonates deep inside of us. Yes, that's the way it was meant to be. However, Genesis 3 enters in. Mark chapter 10 enters in. And we all understand we're deeply, deeply flawed. We're destroyed. We've been touched by divorce. We've been touched by marriages that are broken, that live as though they're divorced, but they're technically still together. We've all been touched by that. Probably, if you're single, you fear that. You fear, if I do get married, what if it ends in divorce? If I do get married, how do I know the person's the right one? That was one of my fears before I asked my wife to marry me. Actually, so much fear that it, that it like imprisoned me in fear. And there had to come a point where I had to completely trust God and go, I'm going to be committed to her for the rest of her life. And that's not necessarily trying to be romantic, that's trying to be biblical. I'm going to be committed to her for the rest of her life. See, we all know the way that we want things to be, and we all see, like, how do we get there now? It's funny, the Bible starts in a wedding and actually ends in a wedding as well. There's a wedding in Genesis chapter 2, and there's a wedding in the book of Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb. How do we get there? How do we get to the perfect wedding? The only way that this can happen is by Jesus breaking in and hitting a reset button. This is the way things were created and the only way that you and I can get there, being deeply flawed, having already made mistakes in our life. There's not a single person in this room that has not made a mistake. But where do we go from here? Jesus has to break in and bring healing, restoration. God is in the redemption business. He can redeem. He can redeem any marriage. He can heal the wounds of any divorce, whether you're directly or indirectly involved. There is not a a single instance in Scripture where an individual seeking forgiveness is denied by God. Not one. doesn't matter who you are or where you've been, or even if you're like, I can't fully really get this yet. But there's not a single person that when you walk, you come to Christ, and you come to Jesus like, I need you to break into my life and bring restoration. He will never deny you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, like we prayed at the very beginning, that you would come radically in grace and truth right now. I do not, Lord, think that we can discount the way thing, that you created things, but also I know that we are steeped in, this, in a world that just, that's broken. I'm broken. We're all broken in here, and we need you to break in and to heal us. 
I pray right now that we know that we can find hope and forgiveness. And in the questions that might be swirling around in our head, would find their resolution only as we think about this is the way it was meant to be. And Lord, would you get us there? The only way, Lord, the only way, God, that you can actually begin to even bring us to that place to where we can live out these truths is if you break into our lives and change our story. We pray that you would do that this morning. We look to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.